Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Y'all having a good week so far? There are heads nodding on the video, by the way. So everybody had a good week. Thank you all for coming tonight. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the love that you've shown to us. We thank you that uh, we have the privilege of gathering together as your people tonight. And uh, Lord, we have such a privilege to come before your throne and to lift up our needs before you, knowing that you hear and knowing that you care and that um, your eyes are always on your children and you know everything that we need even before we ask. Father, we thank you for your precious word and the honor that it is to read and study it tonight. And Father, our desire is that during this time, as always in our lives, that we might bring honor and glory to you. And we pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Tonight, we're moving into Ruth chapter four together. I wanted to kind of just review a little bit, and I thought this would be helpful to kind of give us a big picture of Ruth as we move into the final chapter. But Ruth chapter one begins at home in Bethlehem. They move to Moab, and then they come back home again. And you're going to see that pattern in each of the four chapters of Ruth. So they start at home, they go somewhere, the middle of the chapter is in a particular location, and then by the end of the chapter, they end up back home again. And so Ruth chapter one, they're uh, from Bethlehem to Moab and then back again. And chapter one is about loss. It's about uh, Naomi losing her family, losing her husband, Elimelech, losing her two sons, Malon and Kilion. Uh, It's about loneliness, about Naomi facing the prospect of leaving her daughters-in-law behind in Moab and heading off down the road to, uh, to a life of loneliness back in Bethlehem. But God in his grace doesn't allow that to happen and provides Ruth for her. And Ruth is a preeminent example in scripture of love and of loyalty. And Ruth says to Naomi, I'm not leaving you. No matter what happens, wherever you go, I'm going. Your God is going to become my God. And so Ruth chapter one is about loss, loneliness, but in the grace of God, love and loyalty that God provides Ruth for Naomi. And then in chapter two, we see uh, beginning in the home, moving to the harvest field and then back home again. And so Ruth starting off in the home of Naomi says, I'm going to go and try to find food for us. And maybe I can find grace in someone's eyes and they'll let me uh, glean in their field. And so Ruth goes, lands in a field and it just so happens that that field is Boaz. And so it's about providence. It's about God arranging circumstances above and beyond our control, above and beyond what we know. And Ruth lands in the field of Boaz, but she doesn't know who he is yet. She knows his name. She knows that he's been kind to her, but he doesn't, she doesn't know yet that he is uh, a, in a unique position to be a blessing and a help to the family. She doesn't find that out again until the end of the chapter when she goes back home. But chapter two is about providence, about God arranging this meeting between Boaz and Ruth and also in providing Boaz as a provider for Ruth, for Naomi, for the family. And so Ruth chapter two is about providence and provision. And then in chapter three, it starts at home, moves to the threshing floor, and then back home again. And this is about the plan of Naomi, who says to Ruth, 
uh, here's my plan. I, I need to provide a home for you, a, a place of future security and blessing. And so she explains her plan to Ruth and Ruth obediently, righteously acts it out, carries out that plan, goes to the threshing floor and basically requests of Boaz that he would marry her and assume this role of a kinsman redeemer. And so she carries out Naomi's plan. And then we also see Boaz's righteous character in that he says, I will do this. Uh, in fact, I will not rest until I do this in the very, in the morning, I will take care of this right away. And so we see righteous plans of Naomi, uh, righteous actions with Ruth carrying out those plans. And then Boaz in response, demonstrating his character. And then tonight we're gonna move into chapter four, the final chapter of the story. And the setting begins at home, Boaz's threshing floor, if you will, and then moves to the town gates where most of the action of chapter four takes place and then back home again. But this time at the end, the home is with Boaz and Ruth as now husband and wife. And so the, most of the action in the center takes place at the town gates where Boaz is going to fulfill his obligation to Ruth and the commitment that he made to her. And at the beginning of the chapter, what we see, and some of this comes from chapter three as well, and then moving into the first part of chapter four, I think one of the things that we see is that the path that God has planned for us, the path that God has planned for our good is not always a straight, smooth path. We can testify to that in our lives, can't we? That the path that God has for us is not always straight. It's not always smooth. It's not always easy. Uh, we read Romans 8, 28 that says in everything, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to his purpose. But not everything in that working out seems good to us. There, there are bumps along the road, aren't there? There are bumps, there are curves, there are potholes, obstacles. Sometimes it's a difficult path. And certainly we've seen our, our share of obstacles and bumps and curves in the road in Naomi's life and Ruth's life, haven't we, in the book of Ruth? Famine, loss, death, deprivation, estrangement, uh, being a foreigner in a strange land, uh, uncertainty, all kinds of things, up and down, curves, bumps, obstacles. And then just when everything seems like it's starting to take shape, when everything looks like it's about to uh, come together, the plan come together, if you will, and everything go the way that it's supposed to go, we read in Ruth chapter three that there is a wrench in the plan. Boaz reveals to Ruth that there is another guardian redeemer, another relative who is closer in relation than he is. Now this is right after Boaz said to Ruth, I will do this for you. So Ruth asks him, please spread the garment, uh, the edge of your garment over me, be my covering, provide for me, uh, fulfill this role as a goel, as a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz says, you are a virtuous woman. Your virtue is well known and I'm glad to do this for you. And everything seems like it's going just perfectly. And then he adds this, but there's someone else. There's someone else that is closer in relation 
to the family than I am. And so being the man of character that he is, he's going to give that nearer relative the opportunity to do good, the opportunity to do what's right. So not only is Boaz committed to doing what's right, but he is committed to even providing the opportunity for others to do what's right. And so he says, I'm going to let him have the opportunity. If he will redeem you and redeem your family, the land, then good. But if not, then I will. And he invokes an oath. Uh, as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. And so we have this little wrench in the plans. And that's where chapter four picks up with uh, Boaz going into town. And it says that Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. And then in verse number four, we get the ultimate cliffhanger of everything getting ready to fall apart because Boaz presents the situation to this other relative. He says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it, the land in the presence of these seated here and the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then do so. But if you will not, then tell me so I will know for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. And then here comes the blow. This other kinsman redeemer says, I will redeem it. And if you're reading the story for the very first time in your life, hearing it for the first time, you're thinking everything's falling apart. It all looked like it was going great. But now this, this other thing that has thrown a curve into the whole plan. And so this story teaches us that the path that God has for us, it's not always straight. It's not always smooth. Sometimes there's bumps, curves along the way that we have to deal with. And that's really the lesson. The next lesson from this chapter is that in the face of those curves and bumps and that path that God leads us on, we have a responsibility to face that with wisdom and righteousness. And so we cannot control the providence of God, can we? That's, that's God's domain. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So we don't know his secret plans. We don't know his uh, sovereign decree. We don't know. The only thing that we know is what he has revealed by, by special revelation through his word. In fact, that's the context of Deuteronomy 29. Here's what God has told us in his word, his law, his commands. These are the things that God has given us to obey. The secret things belong to God. So we can't control the providence of God. We, we can't know which path the providence of God is going to take in our lives. All we can do is in whatever moment, whatever situation we find ourselves in, the circumstances under the providence of God, we have the responsibility to act with wisdom and righteousness based on the word that he's told us and revealed to us. And that's where we see Boaz come in because Boaz is in this chapter, the example of that. He's the example of living life under the providence of God, fully cognizant, aware of the providence of God, God's guiding hand, but also knowing that he has a responsibility to act with wisdom and righteousness in those situations. And that's what we see him doing. So the first thing that we see Boaz doing is preparing. He told Ruth 
as soon as it's morning, I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of this. So first thing in the morning, that's what we see Boaz doing. He's arranging things. He's getting everything ready to make sure that whatever happens, whether it's this other redeemer or whether it's him, it's going to happen today. So he's making preparations for it. In verse one, it says that Boaz went up to the town gate and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. And I love the way that the, this is worded in the Hebrew because it, the way it is, it's Boaz went to the town gate and he sat down and behold, the kinsman redeemer, the one that he had talked about came along. It's almost like uh, you, the author of Ruth wants us to get the same feeling that we got in chapter two when he said, and Ruth chanced upon the field of Boaz. Again, God's providence. Boaz is working. He's making plans. He's taking actions. But God's providential hand is still guiding things. And lo and behold, here comes this other kinsman redeemer that he had talked about. He came along and Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So we went over and sat down. And there's a little phrase in the verse where the NIV translates it, my friend. Um, if, you want a, if you want a Hebrew phrase, it's Poloni Elmoni. Poloni Elmoni, and it basically, if I were to put it into an English translation, it is, hey, Mr. So-and-so, come here. It is a phrase that you use to leave someone nameless and generic. Mr. So-and-so, come over here and sit down. It's, it's intentional. The author is intentionally leaving his name out. It's interesting, isn't it? We know the name of every other character in this book. We know Elimelech. We know Malon. We know Kilion. We know Orpa. We know Ruth. We know the names of every other character in this book. But this counterpart to Boaz goes unnamed, intentionally unnamed, just left generic, Mr. So-and-so. Why? To highlight Boaz's role in the story. This, this other unnamed character is left unnamed intentionally to emphasize and to highlight Boaz and his actions because this other character is, he's just the foil. He, he's just the counterpart, the opposite side of the coin, if you will, to who Boaz is in the story. And so the author leaves him nameless. He says, come over here and sit down. Why the town gate? Well, the town gate was obviously the entrance to the town. It was a place of defense, of security, where if there was an enemy, you had to hold the gates to make sure they didn't get in. But the gates were also a place where uh, town business was conducted. It was kind of like our, our courthouse, if you will. And so any town business was conducted at the town gate. It was where all the important stuff happened in the town. And based on archeological um, drawings that we have of some of these ancient Jewish towns, there were like along the entrance, like let's say there's a road and then there's a gate along the sides of that entrance are like little um, benches, little chairs where you could go off and sit down. And it, it was like the, the place of business where it would happen. And so Boaz sees him, he says, come over here and sit down. And Boaz also took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit down here. 
and they did so. So Boaz does all of the preparations, right? He puts himself in a place, hopefully, where he will see this man come along, and he does, and he calls him over. He also does the work of rounding up the elders necessary to serve as witnesses and to make sure that whatever transaction was about to be formalized, that they would give approval and witness of it. And perhaps the 10 elders is what is necessary in order to do that, maybe like a, a quorum, if you will in order to conduct business. And so he calls them, he gathers the, the men of the town together to serve as witnesses because some important business is about to take place. And then we see in verses three through six, the negotiation between Boaz and this other unnamed kinsman redeemer. And so he says to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, the concept here of selling, buying and selling of land is a little bit difficult because according to the law in Moses and according to Joshua, the allotment of the tribal lands, the land was not supposed to pass out of the family. It was not supposed to pass out of the family line, the, the clan, the, the tribe. And so when this talks about buying and selling, it's probably not in the same sense that we would think of buying and selling, where, where we sell something, we, we totally hand over the, the complete and full ownership of this property, and we no longer have any claim on it. That's probably not what this is implying or signifying, because by Israelite law, the land ultimately had to stay within the family. More than likely, this is something along the lines of um, what we might consider a, a long-term lease, or the use of the field for harvesting or something like that, where, where some, perhaps even Elimelech, before they left for Moab, gave this property or assigned it by lease to someone else to use that field and to grow on it. And so essentially what this kinsman redeemer or Boaz, what they're going to do is they're going to pay whatever price is necessary in order to redeem this field back to buy back the use of this land until the next Jubilee, whenever that would be, the, the land of Jubilee. And so he's going to reclaim this land, not later where it would fall back to the family inheritance, but now, and reclaim it now for the family to use and to benefit from in growing and harvesting food. And so uh, he presents this to this other kinsman redeemer, and verse number four says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, the elders, witnesses, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, then do so. But if you will not, then tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So Boaz is not necessarily saying there are no other relatives, but what he's saying is you're the first one in line, and then I'm the second in line. I am already decided that I'm going to do it, but I'm giving you first opportunity because you're first in line. And he says, I will redeem it. Which if we stop there, that would be a crushing blow to our hopes in the story, wouldn't it? But Boaz has done this very wisely. And he has presented this negotiation in such a way, so as I believe to work back toward his advantage 
so that he in the end will be the one who can reclaim the land, but also more importantly, reclaim Ruth and marry her and therefore reclaim the importance of the name for the family. And the wisdom, we might even say shrewdness in the way that Boaz does this is he presents the land first. And of course, if this guy is any kind of businessman, sure, I I would like more land. I would like more land to use and grow crops on. We know now that the Lord has returned his blessing to Bethlehem. Food is growing again. There's already been a harvest. So he says, sure, I'll reclaim the land. But then notice Boaz's careful way that he presented this. Because in verse five, he says, also on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now he brings into it not just one of the roles of a kinsman redeemer, which was to maintain the the family property within the family, within the clan. We know that from the book of Deuteronomy. But now he brings into it another obligation within the family, and that is to make sure that the name of a dead man in the family, that his name, his inheritance, that it goes on and continues and is not forgotten in Israel. This also is from uh, the law. It's the law of leveret marriage. And specifically, the law of leveret marriage says that if there is a man who has a wife and he dies before they're able to have children, so he dies and there's a childless widow, it becomes the obligation of the brother of this dead man to marry the widow and to have children and the first child, the first son of this union, his name will carry on the name of the dead man's estate. Now, Leviticus specifically talks about it in terms of brothers. Nowhere in Ruth does it specifically define the exact relationship of Boaz or of this other kinsman redeemer to Elimelech. It doesn't necessarily say that they're siblings, they're brothers. Clearly this other unnamed kinsman redeemer is first. He's a closer relative than either than even Boaz is. And so the possibility is here that Boaz is not a brother, even if this other kinsman redeemer is. And so Boaz says to him, using the leveret law of marriage, basically uh, combining it together with the role of the redeemer for the land, he says, this is a package deal. Because if you want the land, then you also must do the right thing and perform the duty of leveret marriage and take Ruth as your bride and maintain the name of the dead man along with his estate. And I think Boaz does this purposefully, intentionally, knowing full well that this other man wanted the land, but would not have wanted that full obligation. And so he presented it this way in a package deal. Now, there's nothing in Leviticus, Leviticus, there's nothing in Deuteronomy that specifically says that anyone beyond a brother has to perform this law of leveret marriage. But Boaz apparently is reading this and applying it in the spirit of the law. That is to continue to maintain this man's name in Israel, 
even if he's not a, a equal, you know, on the same chain of the family sibling brother and the letter of the law required to do this, he understands the spirit of this law. That is, I have this obligation, this moral spiritual obligation to maintain uh, the Elimelech's name and the name of his son. And so he, he ties them together and he presents it this way together to this other unnamed uh, kinsman redeemer. And we see his response. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And so he walks away with kind of the, 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 the image in our minds of someone who is selfish, right? Someone, he wanted the benefit of the land, but he doesn't want the accompanying responsibility of maintaining this man's name and his inheritance. Because what would happen is if he took Elimelech's son's widow as his wife, then what might happen is he would have to divide his property in such a way that he would endanger his own estate to his own children. And he says, I I can't do this. I don't want to do it. And Boaz, I believe, presented it this way on purpose to get this reaction from him. I cannot do it. You redeem it yourself. And then we see the transaction. So there's plans, preparations. There's the negotiation back and forth that I think shows Boaz's wisdom and the way that he presented it. And then we see the actual transaction between Boaz and this other kinsman redeemer. It says, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Now, I think it's very interesting the way that this is worded because it shows us that Ruth, as the literary document that it is, was written several generations after the actual events took place. So these events are taking place during the days of the judges. And we know that the book of Ruth could not have been written until at least the reign of King David, because the genealogy at the end of the book mentions the line of David. And so we're talking about several generations that have transpired between the events of Boaz and Ruth to the time when the readers of this document would have read this. And so the author sees it necessary to explain this cultural practice, just like he did of Ruth at the threshing floor in chapter three of the covering of her with the garment to propose marriage. So he explains this. This was the way that that methods of transactions were legalized in in Israel at that time. And so it was a symbolic gesture. The person, in this case, I believe the unnamed kinsman redeemer would take off his sandal and he would hand it to uh, Boaz. And that, that transfer symbolized that he was giving up his right, giving up his claim on this land and his right of being first in line as kinsman redeemer. And so he gave it to Boaz. And that was uh, the matter of legalizing it. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech 
Kilion, and Malon. So Boaz is reclaiming it all because Elimelech had two sons, right? Malon, Kilion. Normally, Elimelech's property would have been divided between, Elimelech, or between Malon and Kilion, but they both died. And now Boaz is raising up uh, a inheritance in the name of Kilion. Nothing for Malon because Orpah stayed back in Moab. His line ends. But Elimelech's and Kilion's continues and he also acquires Malon's share of the estate as well. And he says, I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. So this has been very public. I've called you here to witness this. You are witnesses. This is a binding legal transaction. I'm getting the land of Elimelech, but I'm also claiming Ruth as my wife to raise up a, a seed for Malon. Now, what's interesting here is he says, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. If you read the whole story of Ruth, that becomes an overriding important theme of the whole story. That the name the, of one generation to the next, that it would go on and that it would continue. Why? Because that's how the story ends with the continuance of names, doesn't it? Of the name of Boaz, of his son, of his grandson, ultimately to Jesse and to David. And so this story, the importance of it for the story of the Bible is this. From one generation to the next, the name of the dead man continuing on in his son through his line. Ultimately, the line of the Messiah, isn't it? The line of Jesus. So today you are witnesses. And then we see the declaration the declaration in verses 11 and 12. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And so they say, we are witnesses. They declare that they are witnesses, but then they also pronounce a blessing on this new union of Boaz and of Ruth and say, may your home be like that of Jacob with Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. Jacob had 12 sons, right? Of which came the 12 tribes of Israel. They're basically saying, may your home be as bountiful and prosperous as that. May your clan be built and famous and known in Israel in Ephrathah and Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, let me back up just for a moment. Notice who these townspeople name. They name Rachel and Leah. Now, we know the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah, right? The story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah is Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob worked seven years for Rachel. He wanted to marry her, but 
Jake, uh, but Laban pulled a fast one, right, on Jacob. And he ended up marrying Leah first. And he had to work another seven years for Rachel. And then this whole time we see Jacob loving Rachel. He was the one that he really wanted to marry, the one that he really loved. But notice how God worked. Notice that it was Leah through whom the promised line would continue and through whom the line of the Messiah would continue. And then notice the next generation that the townspeople mention. And may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Who was Judah? Judah was the son of Jacob and Leah. Not Rachel, Jacob and Leah. Because Judah was going to be the tribe of the scepter of Israel. Judah was going to be the ruling tribe. And it's interesting that they mention Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Why is that significant? Well, it becomes significant in the genealogy later because Boaz is a descendant of Perez, a descendant of Judah, a descendant of Jacob and Leah. And the fascinating thing about that story of Tamar and Judah is in Genesis 38, it's really not a pleasant story. It's a story involving deception of, of Tamar playing the role of a prostitute. And the whole thing is kind of upside down and backwards the way the whole thing works out. And it's that event, it's that story, it's that union of Judah and Tamar and the birth of Perez that is in the light of Messiah. And that's why these names are significant because also Boaz and Ruth are going to be in that line as well. And so they're pronouncing these blessings on uh, Boaz and Ruth on their family, but these names are specifically mentioned because they're in the line of David and ultimately in the line of the Messiah. So we have the declaration of the townspeople and of the elders and then the consummation, which we'll spend a little bit more time looking at the rest of the chapter next week. But verse 13 says, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went in to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. That's the climax we've been waiting for, isn't it? Of God working out all of these things for the good of his people. And so we're back to this idea. The path that God has planned for our good is not always a smooth, straight path. There are gonna be bumps, obstacles, curves, but we have a responsibility like Boaz, like Ruth, like Naomi in their actions we have a responsibility to face life's challenges with wisdom and righteousness. That's our role. That's our responsibility. And in the end, God is still working providentially, isn't he? God is still working providentially through our attempt to live wisely, through our attempts to live righteously. God is working through those things, accomplishing his purposes, just as he did here with Boaz and with Ruth and with the birth of their son. God is working out all things for our good. And then we'll see this more specifically next week too, but not only for our good on an individual level, not only for Boaz and Ruth's good on an individual level, but we see how this story fits into the larger picture of everything that God is doing in Israel and for all of salvation history. This story that we're reading in Ruth, 
this is the story of our salvation. This is the story of our salvation, our redemption story. This is our history as believers in Christ. And so sometimes we like to read of the history of our people, the history of America or the history of our civilization. Think about the history of your redemption. This is a part of that story. This is one of the acts in the grand play that God has written for our good and for our salvation. So in our individual lives, the path can be bumpy, but God has given us his word so that we may live wisely and righteously in the midst of the providential circumstances that God places us in. I pray that this story is encouraging to you, but also helps give you wisdom in seeing how to live life under the providence of God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this beautiful story that was lived out by these people and then also that was written by your servant that you inspired to record these things for us. Father, we thank you that you're a God who is guiding all things according to your wise decree. We thank you that you are a God of grace who gives us your word, your wisdom by which we may live. We're thankful that, Lord, you are weaving together all things in our lives, both uh, the blessings as well as the hard things in life. You're weaving them together for our good and for the accomplishment of your glorious purposes. Father, uh, in your word, you've told us that if we ask for wisdom, that you will give it to us. And so, Father, may you grant us your wisdom Help us to live godly and righteously in this present world. Father, bless us as your people, and we thank you, Lord, for all that you do. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.